This morning's sermon is entitled, A Battle for the Throne. And this is the second sermon in a series for this fall that we're uh, going through various psalms that have made an impact on my life personally and that are important to me and that I want to encourage you to, to know better and to make more a part of your life. As I begin this morning, I'd like to make some political observations along the lines of um, kind of the founding of our country. John Locke is widely regarded as the most important modern political philosopher. And in his second treatise written in 1689, he explains the concept of liberty or freedom in ways that might seem somewhat contradictory. Locke says that we all want to maximize our freedom or our liberty, but we can only do this if we are utterly alone. Yet because man is sinful and selfish, when we dwell alone, we are extremely vulnerable and consistently lack safety. And so he says it's, it's within man to develop a societies together or communities. We come together, we band together in fellowships of people. But the moment we come together, we can no longer maximize our freedom. You see, the laws which are necessary in communities of people necessarily limit our freedoms for the common good. But Locke says this is preferable because by limiting your, your freedom in some areas, you actually maximize your freedom in many other areas. You can enjoy your freedom even more. Well, I'm not a political philosopher. I enjoy these things. I more enjoy listening to other people. I enjoy history. But what this teaches me and what I want to commend for your reflection this morning is that freedom or liberty is not opposite of law or restraint. Liberty to be more specific, is definitely not the freedom to do whatever you want without any limits whatsoever. But as we all live in community together in various ways, as families, as a church, as the community of Glassboro or Pittman or Mullica Hill or Washington Township, wherever you may be from, this freedom requires that we live within limits, that we live under law. This also, by the way, and this will be the end of my political musings this morning, it also means that the typical concept of minimum laws equals a Christian approach to government doesn't necessarily make sense. What really, where this really comes to bear, though, in our lives as Christians and for our text this morning, is that most people's idea of rights and freedoms are completely inconsistent. People are taking what they want these days, acting however they want, all in the name of freedom, but the reality is that this only comes at a great cost. Usually it takes away the freedoms of others, and ultimately it robs ourselves of our very identity as creatures made in the image of God. The get whatever I want, however I can get it mindset undermines the very notion of being in community together. 
Now, my role as a pastor is to point out to you the way in which the Word of God bears upon your thinking as you do your work and your various callings. And so Psalm 2 addresses this notion of freedom, and it's really a, a battle for who gets to define freedom. And this is a battle which touches, I think, on teenagers. It touches on students. It touches on singles and married couples on the young and on the old alike. It's a battle between kings versus king. The kings of the earth and their definition of freedom or law and the king of kings and his. It's a battle for the throne. And this, this psalm is, is describing various scenes or almost acts in a dramatic play. S battle scenes or, or acts in the developing picture of this grand battle for the throne. Ultimately, it answers the question, what is freedom for me? And if you struggle with someone's rules in your life, or the government, or church, this psalm will help you. This psalm is a vision of what freedom really looks like from God's perspective. It speaks specifically to those who have authority or power, like a pastor or an elder or a mayor, or the wealthy. But in speaking to those chiefs, if you will, in our society, people with authority, winds up speaking to all of us. Because all of us, at some level, want to be the boss. I'm hoping that after this morning's message, if you are a person who's living in rebellion against Almighty God, if you're in battle for the throne of the Lord, that you'll see what a dangerous position you're in. On the other hand, if you're one who is trusted in the Messiah, who believes in Christ and are trying to live your life for the Lord, I hope you'll be encouraged from this morning's message to keep fighting, but fighting for Christ and not against him. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word in Psalm 2, the inerrant word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you that your word endures 
even though the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this word is as timely as when it was first written, and it will remain applicable to human existence until the very end of the age. So help us, Lord, as we are often feeling battered about and storm-tossed in a society which seems hell-bent on fighting and resisting and opposing you. And it isn't just society, Lord. We ourselves in our hearts often, far too often, fight against the Lord and want to throw off his bands from us. So may this word this morning, the words of my mouth and the thoughts, questions, concerns of each one of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight, for we pray this in Jesus' name. In this battle for the throne, the first act is the prophet's shocking vision. That's my first point this morning, the prophet's shocking vision. Our psalm begins with a question, and it's a question in which the speaker, David, or a prophet speaking in David's, in the spirit of David, says, is in utter disbelief. He's shocked. He's, he gets a vision of, of raging nations. The word rage isn't so much speaking of, of anger as it is speaking of just the jostling and the tumult of like a storm-tossed sea. And at this vision at a distance, it's almost as if he sees the movements of peoples gathering and raging, gathering weaponry, and he sees them literally gathering together and taking counsels. There's plots that are happening and schemings. Perhaps the prophet in his vision would not be so shocked except that he sees the purpose of this raging and movement, the tumult and the plotting and the scheming isn't just sort of a typical nation versus nation, but this is a scheming and a plotting against Almighty God. The kings of the earth who have been made kings with the express pleasure and purpose of God to do the will of God, these kings are plotting against God. And he's shocked. And they're plotting in vain because the prophet tells us that he's not really asking a question. He's saying, why are they raging and plotting since it's so vain? They shouldn't be, is what he's saying. The kings of the earth are setting themselves. This is something like a, a, a battle posture. They're braced. They're prepared. It's ready position. And the rulers, so kings, we have royalty, and then rulers are, are the wise, the noble, the, the mighty, perhaps not with royal power, but with money or influence. And they're taking counsel together. They're in back rooms. They're huddled up. And they're making plans against the Lord and throughout this psalm it's important to note and really in reading all the psalms the the word Lord as I've explained before capital L capital O capital R capital D is 
the way of the translators of this Bible, the ESV and most Bibles, to indicate that this is the divine name. This is Yahweh, Jehovah. So Almighty God, God the Father, if you will, the Lord, Jehovah. But they're not just plotting against Jehovah God, they're plotting against his anointed. The word here for anointed is Mashiach, where we get our word Messiah. Yahweh and his Christ. So as this shocking vision gets closer, he sees them raging and plotting at a distance. In verse 2, he sees them in groups taking counsel and setting themselves in ready position for battle. And then it's as if he, he walks up on one of these meetings and he sneaks up to the door behind one of these closed door gatherings and he puts his ear against the door and his eyes get wide. He is stunned at what he hears in verse 3. What does it say? Let us, us kings, we kings, we rulers, we are going to break the chains of God. And the ropes and the cords of the Lord, we're going to tear off our body. There's a picture here of, in my mind, Samson with his great strength when he treated the ropes that were binding him as if they were just simply made of wax. And so the kings and the rulers think they're so strong they can just pluck these cords and take these chains as if they're threads and just throw them aside. That's how confident they are, quite cocky. But what are the cords of the Lord? What are the chains? Do they actually have chains? I believe here in verse 3 we have an indirect and vivid reference to what was discussed in Psalm 1, which I mentioned last week. Blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. You see, the chains of the Lord, the cords of the Lord are his, are his law, his word his will, God's wishes, God's plan for your life. And so they're looking down at themselves and they say, we want to be our own masters. We don't want to be under anyone else. We're not content to be kings under the king. We want to get rid of the king and be the only true king. And notice he refers to their bonds and their cords, plural. So it's Almighty God, Jehovah, and his anointed. We see them joined together in the minds of the kings of the earth. Here in Psalm 2, a picture of the deity of Christ. He is one with the Father. The word of God is the word of Christ. The will of God is the will of Christ. And the reason we hate Christ is because we hate God. And since we hate God... We reject and murder and destroy his Christ. This is a shocking vision. The second act of the play is Jehovah's surprising response. 
This is the necromatic scene in the battle for the throne. And now Almighty God. And just as we, we, we see the actions of the kings, and then we hear the words of the kings, they're gathering and then they're speaking. We also, in verse 4, see the action of the Lord and then the words of the Lord. But there's a difference. Not only is there a difference in the speakers, but there's a difference in the locale. The kings are gathering on earth. The Lord, where is he? He's in heaven. And there's tumult on earth. There's chaos and the rattling of spears. But the Lord is silent and he laughs. Jehovah's laughter is mentioned a few times in the Bible. And it's, to me, it's a little upsetting to read that God is laughing at a man or at human beings. But then I realized this is another instance of the emotions of God being described in language that we can understand. That if God doesn't clothe his character with human words, we will never understand him. And so he takes what is true amongst people and he attributes it to himself. But as we understand, the, for example, the love of God or even the anger of God, we need to remember that in all points, while there may be similarities, there is a vast difference as well. So while I might laugh at a, at a, at a kid on the playground when I'm in fourth grade and I'm being selfish and mean for doing that, or if others laughed at me, which they did when I was in fourth grade, they're being selfish and mean. When God laughs, there's nothing selfish or mean about it. This is a divine and transcendent response and a righteous response to the foolishness of the plots of these kings. Maybe we need to think ourselves about finding a better way to imitate the laughter of God. Laughing at evil instead of being worried about evil. Scoffing at the plans of the wicked rather than becoming afraid at the plans of the wicked. Do you see what I'm saying? And how ridiculous is it what they're doing? I thought of them actually trying to reach into their DNA and every cell in the body one by one and removing the, that invisible imprint of the divine image that is on every single strand of DNA in your body. That's laughable. There is no tattoo removal that can remove the image of God. There is no reversal effect to change that I am a creature made to live, serve, love, and follow the will of the Lord. Even animals understand this. It's only sinful men who struggle and women. We need to remember that even 
the worst possible human being in his most degenerate state, acting like a craven creature, even in the midst of wickedness and rebellion, even that one is made in the image of God. And so God laughs at them. He, he treats them with derision. He is, he's unmoved by all of the schemes. And then he speaks in his wrath and he terrifies them in his fury. And what does he say in verse 6? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This word set or placed refers to a coronation event in which a king is installed as king. And the tense of the verb indicates that despite the plans for the future for the kings and the rulers who are plotting and scheming and in great rage and tumult, despite their efforts to throw off the bands of the Messiah, God has already installed him as king. It's too late. I have already done it. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now Zion is a mountain in Israel. And notice it says on Zion, not in Zion. It's on Zion as a base of operations because the realm, as we will see in just a moment, the, the, the territory over which this king is set is not merely Israel but it's the entire world. In fact, it's the whole universe is the rightful heritage of this Messiah. And it's a holy hill. So from this holy base of operations, the Messiah wages a holy war in which he pursues his kingdom and he will win because of the one who placed him there. No wonder we're seeing the shock of the prophet in his shocking vision. No wonder he's so stunned and surprised because he knows that the Messiah is the Lord. So we come to the third act, the third scene in verses 7, 8, and 9. And the speaker changes. Having mentioned the king, having mentioned the Messiah and his coronation, which, by the way, in Acts chapter 4 is reference to Jesus' resurrection. We now have the words of the Messiah himself. And what does he do? This is his confident claim, my third point. Messiah says, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. He's confident. As Messiah Jesus speaks here, He's making reference to the word of God. And there is no doubt in his mind that his mission is sure and certain because it is set in the decree, the, the, the kind of the, the permanent action taken by God. So it's a decree, but it's not merely verbal. It's his, it's his redemptive act. Yahweh the Lord said to me, the Christ, 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus, of course, is God the eternal son. He has always been the son. But this particular day of his sonship is the recognition of him being the son by way of him rising from the dead, by way of him being seated at the right hand of God in heaven. It is a public manifestation of the sonship of Christ. And by manifesting his sonship in the resurrection, we see that Jesus has claimed to all that God has created. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then as Jesus recounts this decree, he re replays or repeats something that God told him. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And that he has asked is clear. He has already asked. And so... Jesus is offered and he accepts this, this promise of his inheritance as the son, the ends of the earth. And by the way, it's, it's in our union with Christ, and I'll come back to this at the end of the message, when it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All the promises of God which are given to Christ belong to God's people, not because you're special per se, but because Jesus is special and because God has chosen Jesus as his king, all who trust in Christ receive him and all that he has given. So you become sons because Christ is the son. You become an heir because Christ is the heir. And so Paul says all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. You are not a loser. You are a winner. You are not downcast. You are triumph. That's what this is saying. And the psalmist is part of that great company. He sees that, that being in, in bondage to Christ and in an alliance with Almighty God is the greatest, happiest, most flourishing place that a person can be. And so to see the kings of the earth gathering against God is shocking to him and it ought to be to us and once he comes into his possession which by the way when Jesus rises from the dead he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me it's mine That's what he says. Then begins his messianic rule. He says, you shall break them with the rod of iron, verse 9, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What does this speak to? Well, the rod of iron are the words of his mouth. Christ rules by his word and by his spirit. And it is a rod of iron because his word cannot be changed. But it is a rod of iron because when you resist it, it will destroy you. The flip side of what is instated in verse 9 is it is a shepherd's staff for the sheep that listen and love 
and follow the Lord and have been called from their wandering back into the fold. But it is pictured here as a rod of iron rather than the shepherd's staff because the nations are pictured here as in opposition to Almighty God and his Christ. And so the rod of iron is a warning of their ultimate doom and destruction. If they don't bend the knee and to submit, they will be destroyed, never to be repaired. You will break them with the rod of iron. This is the prophet, or rather the Messiah's confident claim, Act 3. And then we come to the close of the message of the vision in verse 10, 11, and 12. This is the prophet's call to wisdom. So the prophet begins this drama and he ends it as well. He, he appeals to the kings to be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so he's appealing to them to be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. It's as if the prophet is saying, don't say I didn't tell you. Serve the Lord with fear, verse 11, and rejoice with trembling. These aren't words that find their way into Caleb. I love Caleb, but some of these themes in Psalm 2 are missing in our, in our worship lexicon, which is a great reason to sing and to pray the Psalms. Serve the Lord. Obey the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I'm not sure if the kings that are being addressed and the rulers are the same kings that we're gathering against or if that's sort of a distant part of the prophet's vision in verse 1, 2, and 3. And now the prophet is coming to the men of his day, or to us. I think it may be both. In this beautiful statement, verse 12, kiss the sun, bend the knee, bow the head, do homage, revere, reverence the sun. Listen to the sun. Embrace the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Before I conclude, I want to address the difficult topic that this psalm brings up, which is the judgment of God. When I read about the Messiah, often I think about his mercy his tenderness. Scripture says that he is kind and gentle. He is mild. It says that he will not break a bruised reed. A wick that's to be, about to be extinguished, he will not snuff it out. And yet here we read about a rod of iron and breaking into pieces like a potter's vessel. Really this brings into our view the whole scene of violence in the scriptures which can be difficult to understand. Here's how Calvin puts the question, why is it that in other parts of scripture we find the meekness, mercy, and gentleness of our Lord celebrated, but here he is described as being full of terror? I think the answer is that we have set before us the dreadfulness and the awfulness of Christ so that we will be warned what will happen if we do not receive him as our shepherd and as our savior.
So while Christ cherishes tenderly and gently and sweetly even the most wounded soul, he will oppose with great fury anyone who resists him. So while Jesus was sent by the Father to encourage the poor and the weak and to cause healing for the sick and freedom for the prisoner, he was also sent as a triumphant champion who will oppose and destroy all who harden their hearts against him in selfish pride resisting his gospel. Well, the battle for the throne. You know, there was a battle for the throne in David's life, too. Of all seven brothers, he was the least likely to succeed. In fact, when the great Samuel was coming to town to Jesse's household to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the future king of Israel, David wasn't even considered. He was told to stay out with the sheep while his six older brothers were all lined up. Each one sort of, you know, I think it's going to be me. And then when Samuel looked down the line at those six young men, he's like, he's not here. Don't you have another brother? And Jesse's like, there's David. Surely you're not interested in David. No, I think I am interested in David. Go get him. And so David is brought, and Samuel takes out the holy oil of anointing. And David, ruddy, handsome, small, a shepherd boy, is anointed with the holy, royal oil. And he is made the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he is given promises. And then, I don't know for how long, but for quite some time, he was disregarded, chased. Saul tried to murder him over and over and over again. But the story I wanted to tell most was when Goliath was taking his stand for 40 days, day after day, in front of the armies of Israel. And David's bringing lunch to his brothers on the battlefield, the anointed of the Lord. And he hears what Goliath is doing, and he says some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies and taunts the armies of the living God? That boy had more courage than all the armies of Saul combined. And Saul tried to put his armor on. He says, go for it, buddy. Armor didn't work, so he took his shepherd's tools of a sling and five smooth stones. And you know the rest of the story. Goliath dropped dead to the earth. But what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that you can't fight Goliath. You're not David in that story. You're in the armies of Israel, quaking in your boots. The moral of the story is that God has anointed his king. God has set his king on the holy hill. 
He's the one who does battle. And your victory is in him. You're, you're among the six brothers who thought too highly of yourselves and found yourselves overmatched. And you needed the Christ. The little, disregarded, suffering man of Galilee to come and take out your enemies for you. And you raise such a shout of victory and hail to the king as has never been heard. You can't tackle Goliath, but you need Christ to tackle Goliath wherever or whoever he may be in your life because your victory is forever bound up with the victory of the Messianic King. So how do we want to leave this morning's message? I want to simply appeal to you to trust in Christ. Stop fighting your battles alone. The, the shocking surprise of the prophet is that these kings were trying to chart their own path. And too many Christians live this way. Too many so-called religious people are going their way up the mountain, fighting battles on their own. Don't fight against God. Certainly don't fight against God. But don't fight for God on your own. You need Jesus Christ. And this psalm, Psalm 2, is a picture of a battle for the throne. Receive his victory. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means I give up. I'm afraid. I can't win. But I know someone who has and who can. And his name is Jesus Christ. And then the work of the church then is a second application is that we need to go into all the world in response to his commission because he's giving us his word and spirit. He's giving us the weapons for fighting. He's given us the rod of his mouth, which is the word of God, the preaching of the gospel. And so men, women, boys and girls can take the message of Christ as soldiers in the army of God speaking the gospel wherever we go and in whatever context we find ourselves. You see, he is not king in Zion. He is. He's king on Zion. Zion is the base of his operations for planet Earth. He's in a program to retake every single square inch of ground for himself that was lost through Satan in the fall. And you and I are his helpers. We bring the good news to the grocery store, the ballot box, to our companies, our businesses, to the dinner table, to the neighborhood meeting, to the soccer field, and everywhere else we may find ourselves. This psalm makes clear that the kings of the earth are hell-bent, literally, on rejecting the cords of Messiah. And our job as Christians is to live out our faith in practical ways, through the means of grace, the word and the spirit, the church is not a military institution per se. The battle that we fight is not against flesh and blood. It's better. And our weapons are better too. They are not carnal, but mighty through God, Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, for the tearing down of strongholds and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We can't obviously do battle with violence 
violence or coercion, taking the law into our own hands. We do pray for the destruction of the wicked. We pray that every enemy of God would either be saved or damned. That's the prayer of the godly. And Lord, tarry so that as many that can be saved will be saved. Wait just one more day so my son, my brother, my mother, my friend, my co-worker might hear from me the good news and believe the gospel. And by one person at a time, one family at a time, one soccer field at a time, one business at a time, we will do our part. And yes, the enemy will not be will not sleep. As we advance in the mission of Christ, the enemy meets our every advance with equal and sometimes even greater fury, and so will go until Christ returns. But we are not deterred. We are not turned away. Because I, God says, Yahweh says, I have installed my king. He has been given the rod of iron, and all the nations belong to him. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this great psalm and what, what a ringing peal of confident victory it sounds and how helpful that is for us to hear in a day where discouragement is so easy. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to do this on our own. Forgive us for neglecting Christ and Christ's people. Lord, we have what we need. Would you please show mercy to your church? We pray that you would bring in the harvest. You would cause, cause us, Lord, with our own eyes to look upon the victory of the Lord, if you're willing. But if not, Lord, and we must suffer even as Jesus did, we will not define victory as the world does. We know the victory is yours to define and we will follow you no matter what the cost. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.